from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Hoping for harmony, Huawei unveils its Android alternative operating system. Broadening out, chipmaker Broadcom buying Symantec's enterprise software business for over $10 billion. And Uber disappointing the ride-hailing app hosting an XL loss. It's fortunately Friday. Let's make a move. again to first move almost forgot it was friday not quite sure how they say though fortune favors the brave and i can tell you bravery's been needed with the market volatility this week right now what we're looking at for wall street majors here the stocks down pre-market once again following what was in fact the best day for stocks in two months on thursday volatility is the name of the game i think we chalk that up to firmer u.s bond yields over the past couple of days the dow the s p gaining one and a half percent yesterday the nasdaq rising more than two percent we're actually positive as we stand right now for the week that following of course monday's three percent tumble on china devaluation fears that feels like weeks ago right now but we did see china's central bank guiding new one lower for the seventh straight session key the pace of the decline here is slow and steady but i think the direction is pretty clear and that is weaker what about what we're seeing over in Europe right now? Well, I can tell you it's weakness there too. Italian stocks down over 2%. Bond yields have jumped amid strong signals from the coalition government there that we could be about to see a collapse. Over in the UK too, the economy contracting in the second quarter. More details on that coming up very shortly. Now, from a negative surprise on that to a positive one, Japanese growth data coming in better than expected for the second quarter. That then triggered a pop higher in the Japanese yen. And as a result, fueling more speculation that the Bank of Japan might intervene to try and weaken the currency. Well, I can tell you too, two can play at that game. President Trump, of course, tweeting yesterday that he'd like to see a weaker US dollar at this moment. His trade wars seem to be having more impact on weakening everyone else's currencies. Speaking of trade wars, let's get to the drivers. Huawei launching its new operating system called Harmony OS. This comes just as the White House says it's going to crack down on government contracts to Huawei and some of the others. Matt Rivers joins me on this, aptly named Matt. If only there were Harmony, quite frankly. But Huawei saying, look, we've got an alternative if we lose access to, to Google's Android here. Yeah, and, and you know this, according to the uh, the consumer, the consumer business CEO Richard Yu, who made this presentation earlier today. You know, this operating system has been in development for the last two years, Julia, but it's really become a lot more important recently because of this trade war. I'll get into that in a second, but just to talk about the operating system for a second here, it's not going to show up on Huawei smartphones right away. They say they're going to do that over the next three to five years. Uh, really, you're going to start seeing it more on what they're calling their smart screens, which will debut later this year. You might see it on uh, smart watches that Huawei makes and even in in-vehicle systems. Uh, so this operating system is going to be rolled out slowly over time, it looks like. But this all comes back to this trade war. Because remember, it was back in May that the Trump administration placed Huawei on an entity list, which basically forbade U.S. companies from selling their technology to Huawei. Huawei needs 
key U.S. technology to operate, including Google's Android operating system, which is what Huawei's smartphones run on. Basically, now Huawei can only use the open source or the uh, public version of Android and can't use the Google apps like Google Mail, uh, like like Google Maps. And so that was a big deal for Huawei. So this operating system is basically a hedge, Julia, against uh, you know Huawei needing U.S. products in order to make its own products competitive. And there's so much uh, or so little clarity around what the relationship's going to be going forward, particularly with companies that supply Huawei. But what we heard yesterday from the White House was, as far as federal contracts are concerned, they're going to tighten the grip here. Yeah, and not only that, but Bloomberg has been reporting this week uh, that the White House was considering at one point, which we had knew it was public knowledge, that they were going to loosen some of those restrictions on private U.S. companies like Google providing technology to Huawei. Well, Bloomberg is reporting that the White House is going to delay restarting some of those uh, those relationships. And so Huawei is, is, you know, this puts a big question mark over Huawei's future. And I think this just goes to show you that there's no short-term deal uh, in place for Huawei. Huawei, no immediate relief as this trade war drags on with no end in sight, Julia. You know, companies that are caught in the middle, not only Huawei, but, you know, companies like Apple or Intel. You know, these uh, these are all examples of private companies that are going to continue to get hurt from this trade war. Absolutely. And an operating system takes time. It takes years to develop. So um, a hedge. But what kind of quality? Matt Rivers, great to have you with us. And on a Friday night, too, we uh, we are very appreciative. Happy to be here. Let's talk about Broadcom now, because Broadcom is looking to buy Symantec's enterprise security unit for $10.7 billion in cash. Paul and Monica joins us now. Bit of a head scratcher for me, this one, Paul, but talk us through the details and then we'll work out whether this is a, a good idea or not. Very different from their core business, of course, which is chip makers, chip yeah. making. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Julia. I think it's a bit of a head-scratcher because, as you point out, Broadcom is mainly known for being a chip company, but it has been making efforts to diversify and try and find higher-margin businesses like software. So by buying the semantic corporate cybersecurity business, the hope is that this can be a deal that will give them a new revenue stream and, you know, possibly some, uh, you know, more profits as well at a time where, you know, there are concerns about what's going on in the chip market, particularly because of U.S.-China trade tension. It's quite fascinating. To your point, if you can't see growth organically, then you can buy it in, except the revenues of this company. I was just flicking through some of the numbers earlier, and they're actually shrinking. So it's how much can you strip out of this business in terms of costs, perhaps, to, to generate more growth here, which for me is an interesting one. Um, the challenge, of course, for Broadcom was that they couldn't buy the whole thing. They tried to buy Qualcomm, and they were refused access. Is this going to get through the regulators, or do they not have any problems since they shifted their HQ to California? Yeah, I think the move to uh, San Jose obviously helps on that front. There shouldn't be any major uh, issues with this deal from the standpoint of President Trump and a, a CFIUS review. But it's still possible from an antitrust uh, standpoint that there will be some uh, scrutiny of the deal in the U.S. and Europe. It probably is going to go through, though. And you're right, though, Julia. Obviously, this is still a not exactly high growth business, even though the margins are higher uh, for uh, Broadcom. So I think that the company is going to try and cut costs. But you can cut costs too aggressively, uh, you know, different 
business, obviously, but Kraft Heinz is a perfect example of what happens when you just slash expenses but don't actually invest in growth. Couldn't agree more. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, on to our next driver now. And Uber shares going into reverse pre-market. The company reporting a record $5.2 billion loss late Thursday. The stock down some 8% pre-market. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, these results to me felt like a car exhaust with a hole in it. They were simply really noisy. Talk us through the details here because a lot of the, the losses here tie back to the IPO and expenses related to that. Yeah, Julia, absolutely. 3.9 billion of the loss that was more than 5 billion. 5 billion in three months. Uh, that was mostly due to, to cost related to the IPO. That's true. But there's no hiding behind that because even if you strip that out, they lost 1.3 billion in the last quarter. That's a more than 50% increase on the same period last year. And, you know, I think Wall Street might be more willing to overlook that, that if we were seeing the kind of growth rates when it comes to revenue that we'd become used to seeing. But revenue was only up 14%. And compare that to Uber's biggest competitor in the U.S., Lyft, that reported yesterday 72% increase in revenue. So this is a pretty, uh, you know, kind of ugly report on the surface. But some perspective here. If you look at gross bookings, they were up 31%. That shows that there's still demand for this. Uber Eats was up 72% in terms of revenue. That's starting to contribute a little more uh, to the top-line revenue growth uh, in terms of Uber. And in terms of what analysts are saying this morning, Julia, it's not a complete disaster. We can show you some of the, the price targets today. Most of them either unchanged or even slightly raised. People are starting to look at uh, the sense that the competition with the, in terms of price wars with Lyft uh, is easing in the U.S. Uh, and in Goldman Sachs, I thought it was interesting, they, they said today, we continue to believe the risk-reward in owning the leader in this space is favorable despite the regulatory concerns, despite the competition. This is still the biggest player out there, and they're a very diverse business, Julius. So I think that's why we see some, some kind of long-term positivity despite this disappointing number today. Yeah, you make a great point as well. And we talked about this yesterday. Even if the price competition and the price wars with Lyft are easing, Uber's got far greater businesses around the world, not just the United States. So other things to tackle there, perhaps. What about a path to profitability here? Because even Dara Khosrowshahi talked about this in the meme that's going around saying, are they ever going to be profitable here? Yeah, he called it a meme on the call. I thought that was really interesting. And there was another interesting comment from him, Julia. He said, the balance between the top and bottom line is more of an art rather than a science. He was a little less definitive when it comes to, to when they expect to break even or when they expect to be profitable compared to Lyft, which said, look, we think 2018 was our peak last year. They are now probably at least a year ahead of, uh, of Uber in that regard. Dara Khosrowshahi said he expects 2019 to be the peak last year, but, but he, was, he was, as I say, less definitive. And I think, you know, comparing it with Lyft isn't always useful because, as we've said, Uber is a much more diverse business. They're in everything from Eats, which is incredibly fast-growing, incredibly competitive, to everything from new mobility to freight to even flying taxis. So they are definitely, they made this very clear on the call, still in an investment mode. And I think uh, they are hoping that, that Wall Street stays with them through this. Yes, this is a transportation app. It's not a ride hailing app. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, to the UK now, where the UK economy contracted in the second quarter for the worst quarterly performance, I believe, since 2012. Issa Suarez joins us now on this story. Issa, it feels like some of the stockpiling that we saw in the first quarter leaking away and some real uncertainty here yet again over Brexit risks. Talk us through the details here. What did we see? 
Very much. In fact, Julia, one economist telling CNN this will be a rude awakening for Boris Johnson and most likely leave Boris Johnson and his government really your knife edge when we're talking about the third quarter because what we saw, you're seeing there on your screen, the UK economy contracting 0.2% in the second quarter, the biggest in seven years in terms of contraction. Now, economists as well as the Bank of England, Julia, are expecting it to flatline. So this is quite a surprise here, but we're talking about UK production shrinking by 1.4%, manufacturing get this down by 2.3%. This is down to a couple of things. One, as you're saying, a lot of stockpiling that we saw in the first quarter, that's beginning to unwind. This is stockpiling preparation for Brexit, this do or die Brexit, the government was saying, but also uh, factory shutdowns. They only moved early in April rather than the end of uh, of summer. But the reality is clear. It doesn't matter how which you read these numbers, Julia. This is uncertainty, the lack of clarity, the nervousness within the market of a no deal Brexit. That is starting to bite and be starting to be felt. You're seeing there the pound actually sterling fell to a two year low versus the dollar. It actually went down to 121. Yet Boris Johnson, Julia, is continuing to push through his do-or-die pledge. And in fact, we heard today from Savage Javid, uh, the UK Chancellor, who said, look, we're not expecting a contraction, uh, we're not expecting a, a recession, rather, uh, and painting rather a really good positive picture when it comes to the UK economy. But what these numbers show, it is pretty dire, says the CBI, Julia. Yeah, just because you're not expecting it doesn't mean you don't get it. Talk to me about the video that Boris Johnson put on social media, because I retweeted this this morning. He was talking a good mm. game. He was talking about relaxing some of the immigration laws to encourage scientists to come in and help develop drugs and, and innovation in the UK. Sounds like a brilliant idea. Do we have any detail on exactly how no, and when they're going to do this? Very little on detail, as has been something we've, we've seen from this administration. But I can say, Boris Johnson, as you can see there, tonight I announced live on Facebook that we're changing immigration rules to make it easy for scientists to live and work in the UK. Now, he took, he did a Facebook, a Facebook Live, which we haven't seen him do, and he wants a point-space fast-track immigration route to try and attract what he says the very best minds from around the world, specifically when it comes to science, engineering, as well as technology. No word as of when that will start. Start, uh, when it will take place, what would shift in terms of numbers, but he, they want to abolish the 2,000 year cap on the number one, on the tier one exceptional visa talents. And that, I have to say, has been very well received by many people here who say this is a great idea. We need to build on the science, on the engineering, and really boost the economy with this talent. So, very well received. The tactic, though, of coming to Facebook or doing a Facebook Live is something that we haven't seen before uh, from Boris Johnson, but it's something that has been very well received here, Julia. Yes, welcome to the 21st century. Issa Suarez, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world. Hong Kong protesters have begun what's intended to be a three-day occupation of the city's busiest airport. Part of a series of rallies to mark the 10th straight week of demonstrations since the protests began. We're going to be live in Hong Kong later in the program to bring you all the details. Italy's government is teetering after the far-right coalition partner, the League, filed a motion of no confidence in the Prime Minister. Its leader, Matteo Salvini, is pushing for snap elections, which he hopes will put him in the top post. Parliament has been recalled from summer recess and a date for the no confidence vote will be set on Monday. 
All right, so we're going to take a quick break here. But coming up, what does your purchase history say about you? Cardlytics cashing in on your spending habits, and it's paying off for investors. Plus, it's the pot tech startup that gets high on data, not weed. We find out how a kerner is tracking cannabis from seed to sale. All that coming up. Stay with First Move. first move from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. We're counting down to a market open that is expected to be weaker. For all the volatility, though, I should point out the S&P 500 only down some 3% from record highs. We've got the 10-year yield softening a little bit, 1.7% after tame producer price numbers this morning. Core rates falling for the first time since 2015. That gives the Federal Reserve more space, remember. 10-year yield beginning Monday session at one7 So again, only a bit of easing over the week, despite all the volatility. I tell you something that has moved, though, gold. The best week in more than three years as safe havens coming into play, of course, in the midst of the broader uncertainties. A little bit softer today, but we're still trading around that $1,500 an ounce. Let's talk through these markets. As Young joins us now, Director of Market Strategy at BNY Mellon. Great to have you with us. Great to be back. What do we think here? Uh, we think right now, if you're looking at yields and dividend yields, if you look at the yield on the 10-year, uh-huh. yes. still below the dividend yield on the S&P, and if we don't think that there's a recession coming, which we don't, it still makes more sense to buy equities. You're going to buy equities, you still have more upside opportunity in a stock from prices, and you've got that dividend yield that's giving you more income than you're getting on a treasury bond. Interesting. I mentioned this point earlier on this week that actually 80% now of the Dow stocks, or at least one point earlier this week, had a better dividend yield, a better to return here than what's offered to you right now by buying the safest asset, arguably, which is bonds. To your point, is the bond market then too bearish? It's too worried right now about what's going on because, you know, I don't even know that it's necessarily that the bond market is worried. I think the bond market is trying to price in what's going to happen with rates and the bond market is following what's happened with rates around the globe. So when we have dovish central banks around the globe, there's the expectation that the Fed is going to have to narrow that gap. And maybe that's true to some degree. But at some point, the Fed is going to have to take the market on here and say, we're not going to cut all the way down to zero. We're not going to get in line with some of these other central banks because our economy is not in an emergency situation like some of theirs And that is exactly where I was going. So at some point, Jay Powell, the Federal Reserve is going to have to say, guys, you want more stimulus. You want me to cut rates. But we're simply not seeing the justification for that right now in the data. Uh, Look what happened in December when Jay Powell kind of tried to tell the market that it wasn't seeing something or it was seeing something that they weren't. He's risking more volatility. Right. Well, and and he's trying to walk this tightrope, right? He's a little bit scarred by what happened in December and some of his commentary that sent the market really reeling. But I don't think he's altogether comfortable with how many cuts the market is pricing in here because, to your point earlier, there's not really data to support that. If the data materializes or let's say the trade war really escalates and we start to see uh, the making of kind of a trade-induced global slowdown, then then there might be data to support some more cuts, but that's cutting into a downturn and trying to support an economy that's actually turning down. At this point, we can't really make that case. There's not a fundamental downturn in the U.S., and there's not a recession here. So he can't cut unless bad data starts coming through in a real way. How much focus are you placing on what 
through the markets for a loop on Monday, which was the weakening of the, the Chinese yuan here, because right. I feel like we've spent months and months and months talking about weakening Chinese data right. and actually not seeing the follow through in the currency. Yet it's acceptable to see weakening currencies in other countries around the world when their economies are weakening. Sure. So China's currency, you have to remember, is, is really the bellwether for most of EM, especially Asia. Right. So that currency is the most important one. And the fact that they let it weaken, I don't think should have really been a surprise. We were actually expecting them to let it get above seven, that exchange rate, that mental threshold of yes. seven. We were expecting that earlier in the year. So now it finally happened. It Again, it was a mental threshold. It doesn't necessarily mean anything from a numerical perspective. I mean, it means something to the White House. Which it I means think something. The fear factor exactly. was. It means something from a sentiment perspective. Yeah. And obviously to the administration. I think China will continue to incrementally let yes. their currency devalue, but they're going to try to control that fall because they don't have the tools to prop it up if it really goes to a precipitous drop-off. Okay, so don't be oversensitive. Expect a gradual decline. Expect a, a continued gradual decline. What should investors be doing at this moment? Because I've seen you use the term, this is a investable market. You can take risk in this market. Right. What should we be looking at and what do we need to focus on here? Yeah, and, and I want to be careful and be clear that this isn't me saying that I'm overly bullish. No. Right? And we need to make sure that there's a balance in everybody's portfolio of the things that would do well, the defensives that rally on those days when we're down or even intraday when we're down. But making sure that you still have money in the market. This isn't something where you take everything off the table. Even if we get some of those classic indicators, like an inversion at the twos tens, that doesn't mean you pull everything out of the market because even if that does predict a recession, which it doesn't all the time, but even if it does, you still see a nice return for usually the next eight to 12 months, maybe even eight to 18 months. You see, this is fascinating. Just to, to your point there, the inversion we're talking about is, is 10 year bond yields in the United States falling below what we see the yield at for the two year point. Um, to your point as well, not only that, that there's still time to make money, particularly with stocks rising here, but also if you see a central bank like the Federal Reserve making insurance rate cuts, that also tends to mean that stocks can rise. It's supportive for, for equity investors. Right. In, in the past, when they've done things that are slightly similar to this, you do see a continued bull run in stocks. So over the short to medium term, you can expect that there's some support to stock prices. Now, what we've seen, though, in the last, call it seven or, or eight trading days, is that it's very easy to derail that bull run with just a little bit of a macro headline or a little bit of a threat from an escalated trade war or a currency war or anything that would kind of come along and knock us off track. We've talked a lot about macro. What about micro? What were your key takeaways from earnings season here in the United States? And does that justify the fact that for all the noise and all the volatility and all the trade concerns, like I made the point, we're still 3% off record? Right. Well, what's interesting, actually, is if you look at the market compared to a year ago, we really haven't gone very far. No. It's only about 2.5% up. So it feels like this has been really violent. And it felt earlier in the year like we had a really strong year coming in. We were up 20%. But remember, we were down almost we were only 20% taking in the fourth back quarter. Yes, we so we sort of just back. got back to where we were. Now, 
if you look at it on a limited basis and say, oh, we're up 20%, earnings didn't really support an up 20% move because we had kind of a flat first quarter, a flat-ish second quarter. We're expecting the full year to be about 2.6% growth in earnings. Average earnings growth is about 6%. So we're below average. What the market needs, though, and the comps from last year are really tough, but what the market needs is some fundamental reason to keep going up. So we need earnings guidance to continue to stay positive. We need those beats to come through. And I have to wrap mixed, you there because we've got the market open next. Okay. We'll come back to this conversation. Yeah. The market open is next. We'll continue talking anyway, even if you don't. <laughs> move and the final opening bell of the session here in Wall Street as expected a lower open for stocks this morning tech stocks in fact leading the declines its trade concerns once again back in focus reports saying the White House will delay its decision on whether or not to let US firms do business in Huawei that obviously having an impact on suppliers and those that do business with Huawei over in the Asia session too, in addition to an expected crackdown on federal government contracts here in the United States as well for Huawei, but also ZTE. Let me give you a look at what we saw in the Asia session as well. Well, Japan's at Nikkei bucking the trend, rising after that stronger than expected growth report for the second quarter. Chinese stocks falling, though. The producer price numbers there falling for the first time in three years. That opens the door clearly for more easing. But we also saw stocks falling in Hong Kong too. Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam saying weeks of protests have hurt the economy more than SARS and the 2008 financial crisis too. All right, let's get the latest on that because pro-democracy protesters have begun what they're calling a three-day occupation of Hong Kong's international airport, one of the busiest airports in fact in the world. It's one of a number of protests planned by those protesters gearing up for a 10th straight weekend of demonstrations. For more, we're joined by Ben Weedman, who is there. Ben, great to have you with us. Can you give us a sense of, of numbers right now of protesters that are there and are expected to stay over the weekend, but also police and authorities? What presence are on their part too? Well, at this point, we're here in the arrival home of the airport, and there are thousands of people here. However, it should be pointed out that they're not in interfering with the operations of the airport. Uh, some flights are delayed. Some have been canceled, apparently, as a result of a typhoon that's headed uh, to Shanghai. We just heard, however, uh, that the Chinese Civil Aviation Authority is very unhappy that some of the crew members of Cathay Pacific, which is the carrier based out of Hong Kong, have, in fact, taken part in some of these pro-democracy protests, and therefore China is saying that those crew members they believe were involved in the protests will not be allowed to work on flights to mainland China. Back to this protest, uh, what we've seen is uh, thousands of people, mostly young, in the arrival hall. They're not bothering anybody, and the uh, police are keeping a very low profile as far as the situation. They're not trying to stop anybody from doing this, although to get to a to the check-in desks, you have to show that you're actually traveling. So they're being stopped from entering the departure area. Now, one thing they are providing, though, to people who come, visitors arriving, is this fake uh, ticket 
which says HK-809 from Hong Kong to freedom. And in Chinese, it says on the bottom that the gates of freedom will be closed unless you work to open them. So they're using all sorts of other things. Here's a pamphlet they're handing out to arriving, arriving travelers saying, dear traveler, welcome to Hong Kong. We regret the inconvenience, but then the pamphlet goes on to explain why they are holding these protests, what their demands are. But as you can see, it's a very noisy protest. Uh, it seems to be this is the major protest in Hong Kong this evening. The city itself, the territory is otherwise quiet. So it appears that many people have come here. And it's worth noting, not just young people, students, also old people. Some people earlier today I saw even brought their children here. Uh, so yes, it is exactly two months today that the protests began on the 9th of June. This is the 10th consecutive weekend. And these protests do not appear to be losing steam. Julia? Interesting. Ben, great to have you with us and a ticket to freedom. Poignant. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of our global movers, some of the uh, companies that we're watching in this session. Broadcom and Symantec, of course. Broadcom also, and Symantec actually higher. I'm just uh, looking at the numbers here. Broadcom buying Symantec's enterprise security unit for some $10.7 billion, as we discussed earlier on in the show. Uber also under pressure here they reported a record 5.2 billion dollar loss for the second quarter and a 3.2 billion dollar revenue number that coming slightly below expectations the ride hailing or transportation app says most of its losses down to stock based compensation so there was a lot of noise in this report you have to strip back the details here what about Beyond Meat? Also watching this stock today, reports are it's shelved plans to enter the Japanese market and plans to focus more on the U.S. market, where it recently bolstered funding to fight some rivals, like Impossible, of course, too. So shelving plans to enter Japan, at least for now, it seems. All right, another stock we're watching, Goldman Sachs. Malaysia has charged 17 current and former Goldman Sachs employees in its investigation into the 1MDB scandal. Goldman's top international banker is a among those on the list, Matt Egan joins me now. Matt, complex story this. Talk us through the details. What have we learned today? Julia, the 1MDB scandal continues to be a major black eye for Goldman Sachs. Today, the Malaysian Attorney General announced charges against 17 current and former Goldman Sachs employees, including the CEO of Goldman Sachs International, Richard Nade. Now, these individuals were all directors at three Goldman Sachs subsidiaries during the time that the investment bank arranged three large bond offerings for Malaysia's sovereign wealth fund, which is known as 1MDB. Now, the U.S. Justice Department has alleged that four and a half billion dollars was stolen from 1MDB by Malaysian officials and then funneled into New York condos and hotels um, and even used to uh, help finance the film The Wolf of Wall Street. And uh, Malaysia has accused Goldman Sachs of and some of its bankers of misleading investors about the bond sales and fraudulently 
only diverting $2.7 billion of the proceeds. Now, today, the Attorney General in Malaysia is saying that these individuals who were charged, these 17, they were either, they either exercised or ought to have exercised decision-making authority at these Goldman Sachs uh, divisions. Now, the charges carry up to 10 years in prison in addition to fines. Now, for its part, Goldman Sachs has said that they think that these charges are misdirected and they will be vigorously defended. I think, Julia, you know, beyond the obvious legal implications, there are obviously, you know, reputational concerns here. Because if you're Goldman Sachs, you have to worry that um, these charges um, and this overall scandal will, you know, make wealthy individuals uh, and potentially other sovereign wealth funds think twice before they hire Goldman Sachs. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? But to reiterate your point, Goldman Sachs at this moment saying that they will defend themselves vigorously against all charges. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. All right, so we're going to take a quick break here again. But coming up on First Move, the fintech company monetizing your purchase history. The CEO of Cardlytics joining us next. Stay with First Move. Welcome to First Move and a move into the fintech space now and a look at the firm Cardlytics. It's a company that harnesses what's called purchase intelligence, working with big banks to collect data from card and bill payments. It's the kind of info advertisers and banks crave, helping them target customers with things like deals and promotions. And that strategy is paying off for early investors. The stock has surged almost 90% in the last three months alone. Joining us in the chat room, Scott Grimes, the CEO and co-founder of Cardlytics. Great to have you with us. Good morning, Julia. Okay, that was my words. In your words, what is Cardlytics? Tell me how it works. So we're a digital marketing platform, just like a lot of the other ones out there. Uh, we have some really unique capabilities. So let me tell you how we build it. Yeah. Unlike other digital marketing platforms, which kind of signed up a customer at a time and grew their business, we partnered with lots of banks to build a single sort of marketing network for advertisers. And there are two things we get from our bank partnerships. First of all, we're able to bring marketing to all of their customers through their bank's digital touch points, mobile banking and online banking. Yeah. And we bring it to customers in the form of cash back offers. So while people haven't heard of Cardlytics, they've heard of Bank America. Bank of Merrill through Bank of America. I've definitely heard of Chase that. offers through Chase, PNC, payback through PNC. We work with lots of banks. Second, um, we use insights from the bank's purchase data to both make sure we're bringing customers offers that are relevant to them, which also means advertisers are reaching customers that are likely to be valuable customers. And then we're also using that purchase data to measure the effect of the advertising. So closing the loop in the advertising so we can measure the return to the penny. So this is really important for me. I mean, there's many things in there. One, you're understanding exactly what we're all buying. How do we target a person knowing exactly what they buy and perhaps assuming that they'll want to buy the same thing? But also with all advertising, you're never quite sure whether it's tackling the consumer appropriately, whether actually they're acting on it. But what you're saying is this is a great way of understanding how that advertising is impacting a customer and if they're acting on it. Exactly. And what we find is that the way you've purchased in the past is incredibly predictable, predictive and insightful of what you're interested in buying in the future. So that past purchase behavior it helps us really find the people who are going to be most interested in the marketing that we're bringing to them. And because we're then measuring the impact of the marketing, did it actually work? Did it change consumer behavior? Our models are constantly getting better and better at bringing the right message to the right consumer. So the first 
thing I thought when I was looking at what your company did was go, am I comfortable with the bank selling my data? Yep. Yep. Tell me what exact data they give you and do you see my name? Is there any way for an individual to be identified and can as a consumer or someone that works with a bank or banks with a bank go, you know what, I don't, you don't want my data handed over, I don't want to be targeted. Yep. So a couple things. Yep. First of all, the banks aren't selling the data. Instead, what they're doing is letting us analyze the data. Right to go and understand what offers to bring to their customers. But importantly, we never use any personally identifiable information and the data never leaves us or the bank. So it never goes outside the network. Right. Second, we actually, um, there's two numbers I look at. We make it very easy for customers to opt out. If they don't want the service, it's fine. System-wide opt-out rate is less than a quarter percent. Wow. But the other metric we look at is how do people engage with the offers? On average, we see about an 8% click rate, which is an order of magnitude higher than you see in other digital channels. So I look at two things. People aren't opting out, but they are aggressively engaging with the channel. That We believe the reason for that is because we're bringing them great value. Amazon Prime Day, mm. or two days. What did you see there? What are your big takeaways? Because that does interest me yeah. in terms of just spending habits and what we see. And actually, outside of Amazon, what happens to people's spending? Yeah, you know, we're pretty geeky, so we're all always analyzing how people <laughs> are changing their spending. Geeking out with you. And we've watched Amazon Prime pretty carefully over yeah. the past few years. What we saw this year is that Amazon Prime Prime customers spend about 25% more than they did last year. So it's really growing. It also is pulling that back to school spending forward. But the other thing that's really cool is for those same Amazon Prime customers that spent more, they also spent 20% more online at all the other retailers. So it's a kind of a rise in tide benefits all. Does it steal from bricks and mortar though? Because that's the thing. Do we see this shift high on online purchases and actually to the cost of the high streets? So, you know, there Online is definitely growing, but this, it was more of pulling the back-to-school spending forward versus stealing from the high streets, using, <laughs> using your term. You know, the one thing that we are seeing that's super, we do a lot of work with advertisers on growing their omni-channel strategy. A lot of people talk about that, but we can really do it because we can see the brick-and-mortar customers who also have a propensity to spend online other places. The reason it's so important is when a retailer gets someone to spend both in the brick-and-mortar and online, it doubles the total amount of sales they get with that customer versus a customer who spends in only one channel. You know, it's interesting. You work with a number of the big banks. You mentioned Chase, JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America, I know. It is a big one. I was just trying to think, given that you IPO'd, you went public a year and a half ago, who would actually like to buy you? Perhaps the <laughs> banks would have a real battle, actually, because no one would actually want the other person to own you. But I think a big tech giant would actually love to have the ability to strategically target and to go to advertisers and go, guys, look at this technology. You know, let's pinpoint exactly who wants to buy what, when, and how. Any interest from big tech companies to buy you? You, you know, I spent all my time running the business, trying to make it <laughs> more and more valuable. One of the things that we are incredibly in tune to is we, we work with some really sensitive assets, yeah. with both for our bank partners, but also for our advertising partners. And we always make sure that we're that really sort of good, fair partner that sits in between the two. Are you profitable? Uh, we're getting there. Uh, <laughs> so uh, not yet. Not yet. We lost uh, about 600,000 of adjusted EBITDA last quarter, right. uh, but we are just now starting to see the fixed cost effects of our business that we're starting to show, really show leverage. And that was driven by, we made some very large investments to scale up for Chase. Wells Fargo's launching in Q4. Those investments are made, and now we're starting to see the uh, the operating leverage as we grow into our scale. Profitable in 2019, 2020? Yeah, we have we have publicly stated that in 2020, we will be uh, adjusted EBITDA profitable. Fantastic. Come back 
can talk to us again. Um, it's a fascinating I would company. Love to. Scott Grimes, CEO and co-founder of Cardlytics. All right, we're going to take a quick break now. But up next, redefining high tech. The Nasdaq's newest pot stock finds a fresh way to cash in on the cannabis market. A Kerner's CEO tells us how. Stay with us. That's coming up. To first move, meet a Kerner, the newest cannabis stock to hit the market. But unlike most pot stocks, this company pushes software, not soft drugs. This is how CEO Jessica Billingsley described what a Kerner does. The way an investor, any investor should think about us is as a software as a service business right. that happens to be serving what is arguably one of the fastest growing industries in the world. Yeah, but you're collecting data, basically. This is the key. Absolutely. Legal cannabis retailers use a kind of software to enter product data at all points in the supply chain from planting the original seed to customer sales. It's not an exceptional business model, but it focuses on an exceptionally high growth and lucrative market. I asked its CEO to give me a sense of the cannabis industry's growth potential. July 4th is the third busiest holiday of the year right. for cannabis sales. And this year, cannabis in, in the July 4th week did 80% more than in a normal week wow. in terms of sales. And in fact, in 20, at the current rate of consumer growth, which is about 12% a month. So if you think about that, the consumer growth rate of cannabis, 12% a month. We predict that by 2020, people will buy more cannabis 4th of July week than wine. Really? Just next year just based on the growth that you're seeing right now. And you said you're tracking in other countries too. Is the United States far more prevalent in terms of the growth rate and the amount that's being bought than any other nation right now? The United States still leads, but it is hampered by the federal state conflict, right. which is still existing. And it's a question of when, not if, it's going to end. In the meantime, we're working with many countries that are legalizing at a federal level and enabling compliance for them, providing the backbone and regulation as, as really a global marketplace is emerging. I mean, I've read that you saw $400 million worth of sales in that July 4th weekend. I mean, as you said, that's the third largest holiday, so we can't take that in isolation. But what kind of size market are we talking about by 2020 if you're talking about a 12% growth rate on a, on a monthly basis? We're projecting around 30 billion. A 30 billion dollar market. As Jessica outlined there, though lack of clarity on regulation is tough on a business, it's also tough on the consumer. And you've heard this on First Move before. As a Kerner CEO points out, no regulation means no clear standards on the product. And that, she says, is a key concern. We talk about the three P's, which are public safety. So knowing where the product is going, making sure there's no diversion, it's not making it into the hands of minors. Product safety, which is this, this concept of the supply chain tracking and being able at any time to enable a recall or to know where your product is along the life cycle. Yeah. And then finally, that, that really important piece for any patient or consumer, so patient safety, what's in my product? What am I getting? How can I know that when I'm buying this, it's going to have this effect and it's not going to be double or less that, that I really can have good confidence in what I'm receiving. Are you talking to regulators? Are you even having that conversation at this stage where they say to you, look, can we use your data? Can we have a conversation with you about what you're seeing? 
Absolutely. We often have a seat at the table with regulators and, and really educate them on how you can regulate, how you can tax, and, and how you can have good confidence in tracking this product and, and having good confidence that what you're doing for your constituents is going to be appropriate. I mean, the, the majority of Americans now want to see legalization at the, the federal level. What's your sense? How long do you think it takes? And we've got the majority of Republicans, I believe, actually now are saying that perhaps this is something that we should be looking at, whether it's recreational for medicinal purposes. How long do you think it takes before we see at the federal level um, a relaxation of these rules? I've been doing this for about a decade. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I haven't said this in all the years leading up, but we're now in a near term really? period of time. It's within a couple years. And part of that, if you you know look back at our, at our previous uh, conversation there around what's happening globally, there are other countries that are moving forward with really strong, really stable regulation and tracking and, and proving that this works and, and creating this global marketplace. And the U.S. is not going to want to be left out of that for very long. The business could not only work for cannabis, of course, they can track any kind of product, and she said that, but right now, they're just focusing on the cannabis industry itself. All right, let me give you a look at what we're seeing for U.S. majors at this moment. We are softer. The tech stocks remain the underperformers. Plenty of broader trade concerns right now, and I think that's going to continue to play into the session. I'll be back in a couple of hours' time on The Express, but for now... That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chesley. You can also listen to our podcast, cnn.com slash podcast, if you want to uh, rehear the show's action. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Have a wonderful Friday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.